This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Ghosted, an American story, written and narrated by New York Times best-selling ghostwriter Nancy French, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan. And I'm Sarah Welch-Larson. And Kevin, I've got my bucket of popcorn. I've got my fedora. I've got my roguish attitude. And I am so ready to talk about Indiana Jones. I am too. I'm so glad to hear that. Since you're handling the popcorn, I'll be handling the bullwhip. Listeners, we are going to be talking about Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny on the show this week. We'll also be discussing potentially a relic of bygone times that would be a small town in dusty Texas, the subject of Peter Bogdanovich's 1971 movie, The Last Picture Show. Should make for a great episode, listeners. You'll have to tell us if it belongs in a museum on episode 389 of Seeing and Believing. Well, in that case, what are we drinking? Same for the goddaughter. Dad told me you found something on a train during the war. A dial that could change the course of history. Why are you chasing the thing that drove your father crazy? Don't move. We need to get out of here. Stop! Sorry. Dr. Jones. Welcome to episode 389 of Seeing and Believing. I do kind of wish that since we are talking about Indiana Jones, we could have found a way to zhuzh up our our own theme song a little bit, just because the iconic Indiana Jones theme is just something that you know kind of instills that desire for something equally rousing. Not every um not every composer can be John Williams, I'm afraid. So No, and in any case, any composer who is around John Williams' level probably isn't letting their music be used under Creative Commons License 3.0 <laughs> on SoundCloud. So, you know, I guess we were kind of out of luck there. We'll have to raid the um, secret composer vault, Indiana Jones style, perhaps, in order to zhuzh it up ourselves. We've got top men working on that, I'm sure. <laughs> Listeners, we're going to be talking about the new Indiana Jones adventure here in this first segment. I'm really looking forward to the watchlist segment as well because Sarah, you picked Peter Bogdanovich's The Last Picture Show to go with this film. And I'm not to spoil too much about that discussion, but it was not at all the movie I was expecting it to be (laughs) based on that pairing. I am looking forward to our discussion about it. I know it was an out of left field one. I also promise there is some connective tissue there. Okay, the galaxy brain... Connections might be a little bit more galactic than than usual, but they are there. So looking forward to hearing those as well. But for now, let's turn our attention to this new adventure. It is Harrison Ford's swan song as the iconic adventuring archaeologist and his first outing without Steven Spielberg at the helm. And it begins with a flashback to the waning days of World War II, where Indy and his friend Basil Shaw try to emancipate an ancient Archimedean artifact from the clutches of the Nazis. Who else? After they are more or less successful, we move forward to the futuristic year of 1969, where Indiana Jones is a grumpy old professor on the verge of retirement who doesn't understand the kids these days. <laughs> However, as often seems to happen with him, even at that advanced age, he's caught up in a struggle over the same ancient artifact that he and Basil found in 1945. This time, he's accompanied by Basil's daughter, played by Phoebe Waller-Bridge, and opposed by a Nazi scientist, played by the great Mads Mikkelsen. So Sarah, uh, without giving away too much about the plot, it's safe to say that this is a film that's very interested in the passage of time. And since this is a 40 years on version of Indiana Jones that we're seeing Ford play here, the question that is on lots of people's mind, and very much on my mind at least, is does it justify uh bringing the hero back for one last adventure and does that dovetail effectively with the theme of time and its passage for you 
Yeah, I don't know. Um, we were talking off mic before we started recording about um, whether or not Indiana Jones himself is a relic. Um, and I think it is easy to make digs about this movie, like saying maybe it belongs in a museum alongside all of the other Indiana Jones movies that came before it. But I think it's safe to say that the Indiana Jones franchise or series or whatever you want to call it has kind of always been about bygones. Indy himself is old fashioned, even in Raiders of the Lost Ark. And he's kind of old fashioned in the other movies after them, although he sort of solidifies into a, a slightly different character as the series goes on. And here, this movie is just underlining that old fashionedness more than some of its predecessors have, but that theme has always been there. Indy is interested in preserving history in a way that nobody else around him, none of his contemporaries anyway, fully understand, and which none of his adversaries particularly respect. And I think here, we're less focused on the artifact that he's chasing down and more about his attitude towards those artifacts and how he's always been that slightly old-fashioned guy, but the world has continued to move on a little bit further beyond that. So much so that I think there are moments in this movie where Indy genuinely looks bewildered at the world around him, and he looks as though he's completely out of place, as opposed to only being slightly out of place, like he was in his previous adventures. And sometimes that works, and sometimes it almost registers as confusion. And I'm not sure if that's intentional on the movie's part, or if that's just Ford playing the character as that character would probably reasonably react to the world of 1969. Um, all that is to say, I had fun watching this movie. I also felt a little bit out of place as I was watching it. And I'm not 100% certain if that's because the artifact does kind of take a backseat to Indy's attitude towards the world around him, or if it's because this movie is a throwback to other movies kind of like it, which are also a throwback to serials that preceded them before, in a way that doesn't quite jive with the way that we make movies today. So curious to know how you how you approached it. Yeah, so I think uh, I, I like that you used the word throwback there because that, I was going to bring that up if you didn't, because even in Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones was kind of a throwback. You know, the the old serials that kind of served as the creative inspiration for that film, you know, those hadn't been airing in theaters for a while, you know. Mm -hmm. So it was already kind of a nostalgia trip for audiences watching Raiders of the Lost Ark in the movie theater. Um, but watching this movie kind of crystallized something for me that I hadn't really thought about before is that even in his earlier adventures, Indiana Jones is a little bit of a man out of his time. Mm -hmm. um, he's, it, you know, he's obviously chasing down all these valuable objects from, from the past, but there's also this sense that uh, even, especially in the way that audiences would have engaged with his heroics, he's not a person who is, the same as his contemporaries, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, and even in the kingdom of the crystal skull, we get that one shot where, you know, it's the, the famed and much maligned sequence uh, in with the nuclear test. That's such a great scene and, though. And uh, he, you know, he gets in, he gets into that refrigerator and gets blasted out and he, you know, he gets out and he's totally fine. We're not going to litigate that here, mm -hmm. but Spielberg gives us this shot of Indiana Jones stepping out of that refrigerator and looking up and just being dwarfed by this mushroom cloud. Yes. And I think that's kind of something at the time I didn't really, I thought it was a cool image, but it didn't really, I didn't think about so much what it meant about Indiana Jones as a character until I saw this film and I thought, back to that image and this film kind of makes explicit that part of the subtext which is that indiana jones has never really fit in in his own time and that's kind of what spurs his adventuring is he feels more comfortable surrounded by the objects and booby traps of the past mm -hmm. and i i found that to be very interesting um, I liked how uh, Mads Mikkelsen's villain even kind of puts a button on it when he he says to Indiana Jones that he wants to use the artifact as a way to uh, paraphrasing as a way to to 
get back to a time where it, people like Indiana Jones and uh, Mickelson's character are more appreciated, where they're they're not the people out of time, where they're the ones who feel in the right place and the right time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a really interesting idea for this film. I don't know that I'm fully satisfied by the way that James Mangold, who's taken over the directorial helm from Spielberg, really weaves that into the usual heroics. I, I don't know. Like, I, I think the the themes are there. I don't think it's been synthesized fully satisfyingly for me mm-hmm. into an overall whole, an overall artifact, if you will, in the same way that Last Crusade or Raiders of the Lost Ark did. Yeah. It's interesting that you bring up Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. I happen to be one of those people who does think that that scene with the nuclear test site genuinely rules especially that shot and because of that shot of Indy looking up at the mushroom cloud I don't know I, th- I think Mangold having made Logan I think I was expecting another sort of old man Logan sort of story where Indy is really coming to grips with his own mortality and with his own failing body and I was a little bit worried about this movie coming out because they kind of tread that territory with Kingdom of the Crystal Skull in a way. And so I'm glad that they don't try to relitigate the fact that Indy is aging because Crystal Skull does draw explicit attention to the fact that Harrison Ford was getting old at the time. And then 15 years later, we get another Indiana Jones movie. Thankfully, they don't try to make a lot of those same points. I think this is a much more philosophical movie than it is about Indiana Jones falling his way through all of his adventures. I don't know that that makes it explicitly an Indiana Jones movie, though, because a lot of Indiana Jones is Falls, and a lot of it is him failing to achieve his goals and failing to do it in a way that forces him to perform feats of strength and acrobatics and quick-wittedness. And some of that is there, but I think that they've ceded a lot of that territory over to Phoebe Waller-Bridge's character, Helena, and to a couple of other characters who kind of pop in and out as necessary and then step back so that Harrison Ford can deliver a few lines about what he, as Indiana Jones, has learned about the world. And those pieces don't really work for me particularly well because I don't think Indiana Jones is really all that capable of learning lessons very well. He's good at solving puzzles. I don't know that he learns very many lessons other than he needs to let it go at the end of Last Crusade. Everything else is just him on a trip and he's sort of along for the ride and he's the connective tissue that gets you from one point in the serial to the other but he's kind of a static character and so it feels a little bit weird to see him in old man mode as this arbiter of wisdom that I don't know that the character ever has fully had and I'm not saying that it's disappointing to see a character become dynamic and change throughout the years since we've seen him last it just doesn't really feel like Indiana Jones to me. I 100% agree actually. Okay. <laughs> uh like the it the Logan comparison is well taken I think because you know I've got quibbles with Logan. I've got mm. I've got my issues with the second half of that film once you know the the Logan double comes on on the scene it becomes a vastly less interesting movie to me personally. But I do think the the opening of it where we do see sort of this character who's been a superhero kind of aging and and dying is extremely effective and i think it's effective partly because uh mangold kind of has free reign to really just take the character wherever he wants to take him and wolverine himself is kind of it it still feels of a piece i guess with that universe in a way that this film dial of destiny doesn't and I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that Indiana Jones, he isn't a the sort of character who needs to come to terms with his past regrets. Mm-hmm. Like he he's a man out of time and and he feels more comfortable in the past. But that's I think best left as subtext, um, or at least it's it's best left as something that we don't we don't want to see him kind of really. 
beating his breast about it, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't think that Indiana Jones is the sort of character who can support that kind of introspection and still have the usual daring do with, you know, the, the meaty punches to the face and the, the comedic uh, action sequences where he, he's constantly escaping by the skin of his teeth. I don't think those coexist comfortably with a scene where he expresses his regrets over a failed marriage. I mm. just, I don't think Mangold marries those two successfully. I don't know if any director could have married them successfully, but I just, there's just not really a way to to make that work in a way that just kind of doesn't feel fully sincere to me, I mm. guess. If, if Indiana Jones is going to feel deep regrets over uh, the way his lifestyle has led to uh, some personal losses, then it's kind of hard to get hyped up for him going on yet another one of those adventures. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I, I feel a little bit of two minds about the scene that you're alluding to because there is some regret there. And I think that there's a moment where the movie feels like it's almost head faking towards a central thesis. Um, Specifically, Indiana Jones says, I don't think it really matters what you believe so long as you believe it really hard. And that also felt a little bit disingenuous for Indiana Jones himself to say that because he's not really much of a believer, is he? Like, he comes across these artifacts, especially in the previous installations of this series, where he's watching other people tear apart the world for their beliefs essentially and i don't fully know that the movie knows how to commit to a statement like that about it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you you're the one who's essentially believing it the most because we get these characters who believe in the power of the ark in raiders of the lost ark and they're believing in it to the fullest of their ability but also they're nazis and god is going to smite them down for it That feels like the wrong lesson to be taking from the end of that movie. Same thing with the end of Temple of Doom. Same thing, I think, also with the end of Last Crusade, in which the characters who believe the hardest in the Holy Grail are the ones who are so taken with it that it's going to lead them down to their destruction. And he has to learn how to let go of his belief in that artifact. So I don't know. It felt like a touching statement to make in the moment because it's something that he's never really been fully able to commit to. And I think at that moment, he's saying that he wasn't able to commit to any one thing beyond his commitment to the past, agnostic of anything else that he was collecting. And at the same time, it also feels kind of at odds with all of the other adventures that he's been through beforehand. Yeah. I mean, part of it comes down to, I I think... Harrison Ford gives a very good performance, I think, here. And he that goes a long way towards selling that kind of emotion and sentiment in, in a lot of these scenes where he does, you know, talk about his regrets with uh, his family life or with, you know, the things that he's seen and sort of what he's learned from all these adventures. Mm-hmm. Ford's performance goes a long way towards putting those things over. And I think it's only after you kind of like stop and think about them a little bit, they're like, wait a minute, <laughs> Is this? does this make sense for this franchise and this character? And I think that's kind of where it begins to uh, reveal its thinness to me as well. Mm-hmm. I think some of that disingenuousness also shows through in the film's use of violence. Hmm. So weirdly, even though... You could argue that Raiders of the Lost Ark is a bloodier movie. Like there's there's gore, there's the famous you know face melting scene, mm-hmm. really intense stuff. I felt like the violence in Dial of Destiny is much more upsetting, and a lot of that is because of just how coldly the villains dispatch uh, a lot of characters, and not just not just characters who we we barely know, like characters who have been given names who have had scenes with mm-hmm. Indiana Jones who we have been given time to form relationships with are dispatched in an instant and they're dead dead and they're they're kind of that violence is used in ways that I felt a little bit uncomfortable with at one point uh, you know a character dies and 
Phoebe Waller-Bridge's character is like, you know, she's kind of the Indiana, the young Indiana Jones. Uh, <laughs> that she's like, oh, that that was bad, but you know, on to the next set piece, on to the next adventure. Mm-hmm. And uh, Harrison Ford's Indiana Jones is like, wait, stop! Somebody just died. I cared about this person, mm-hmm. and it's a way of it's. You could read that moment, I guess, as Mangold trying to take the violence in these movies seriously. Mm-hmm. But to me, it, it felt a little bit like the movie's trying to have its cake and eat it too, while in that it's trying to have that violence sort of as a way to, you know, give the audience a jolt and then also kind of have a speech about how violence is bad. Mm-hmm. It, it felt a little bit as if it was trying to have it both ways. And again, maybe there is a movie where that would be an interesting tension to explore. I don't think an Indiana Jones adventure is the movie where it can be explored and feel sincere. Yeah. It's interesting because you've got the movies very pulpy roots. So there's going to be a little bit of a tossed off nature to a lot of that violence anyway. Like the face melting scene in Raiders is genuinely horrific, but other people also die all the time in that movie too. And it's never really alluded to all that much. But you have a character who's literally chopped up by an airplane propeller. If you think about that for longer than five seconds, like it's genuinely horrifying. And yet I think it works for that movie because it's just another like punctuation mark at the end of an action sequence. And I think conversely here, because the movie is willing to linger on the horror of those deaths that are pretty casual and also pretty realistic for at one point indiana jones literally cradles a dead a dead body of somebody he's known for a long time Mm -hmm. and comes with blood on his hands yeah it's horrifying and i think the understated nature is what makes it so horrifying because it is a genuinely like this is the way that somebody in our own world could possibly die and in most other indiana jones adventures it's because they got hit by a poison dart in a booby-trapped temple somewhere And weirdly, I think being divorced from reality in that way makes that much more palatable. And here, because we're spending so much time on the ethical and moral quandary of living in a world that is so violent, um, it kind of takes me out of that world to begin with. And maybe that's because that's how Indiana Jones himself feels being part of this world, too, because, again, he is a relic who is out of time. I don't know. I, I'm not sure how I feel litigating the realism of the deaths in an Indiana Jones movie, because I do appreciate that the movie respects that kind of depth. I almost wish that it had spent a little bit more time on it. But again, then you kind of lose the feeling of it being Indiana Jones in the first place. I, I don't think that you can that Mangold could really explore it to a satisfying degree without basically turning this into the Logan of the Indiana Jones franchise. And And that's no good. I mean, like that could be interesting. I would be maybe interested in watching that kind of movie, but it wouldn't be this movie where he's also trying to make sure that we kind of, you know, get excited for following Indy on, you know, another adventure. It's got that kind of, in some scenes, it's got that kind of good natured, you know, high spirited Spielberg esque. Let's have a fun adventure with our pal Indy. And you can't have, meditations on all the deaths that he's seen and the the way that that can traumatize him like you you can't do that and expect me to take it seriously i don't think it certainly leads to a lot of cognitive dissonance and i felt that with another character who manages to escape one of the bad guys basically using like a handcuff and some very clever thinking on on that character's part. And then that character immediately applies a lesson that they've learned about how to move through the world, literally how to swim, essentially. Like they've been given a little bit of advice. They, they claim that they don't know how to swim and then they follow that advice and they're able to get out of the pickle that they're in. And that moment with the character basically like applying a small lesson that somebody else had imparted to them, I think works for me in that it distracted me from the horror of the bad guy's death that had just happened a couple of seconds before. And maybe that's the addition that this installation is including, is that it is kind of about lessons learned and about trying to look to the past, not just as a source of 
treasure or adventure, but also as a, a place where you can actually learn lessons from and spend time in. And again, I I like the idea. Like, I really want to like this movie, and I had a lot of fun watching it. But the more I think about it, I think the more it falls apart structurally for me. Yeah, I don't know. I think... So the character of Dr. Fuller uh, played, you know, the Mads Mikkelsen Nazi scientist character, mm-hmm. I think is he's very interesting, um, especially by the standards of Nazi villains in Indiana Jones movie, because he's kind of, even though he's a scientist and not an archaeologist, and um, he's sort of developed as... Uh, somebody who has been basically adopted by the U.S. government post-war because he's he knows so much about mathematics and physics that they need him to help them in the space race. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, shades of Werner von Braun there. Mm-hmm. Um, even though on the surface, that's not very similar to Indiana Jones, they are linked by this artifact they're chasing, the Archimedean Dial of uh, Destiny, the the Antikythera. 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 Oh, yeah. yeah. What what you said. <laughs> um, the they're they're linked by this object and kind of what it represents to both of them. The and the way that that's developed is that. Um, Dr. Fuller also feels like in some ways he's a man out of time. He needs to, um, he, there are things that he wants to have gone differently Mm -hmm. just as Indiana Jones has developed, uh, over the course of this film. And that's a really interesting kind of two sides of the same coin uh, tension that I would have been interested to see the film explore and it does explore it in a couple of scenes you know that these two guys are linked not just by they're chasing the same MacGuffin, but also there's something else uh deeper in them that drives them both even though ideologically they couldn't be more different mm-hmm. i think that's a, an interesting and productive thing to explore and that maybe could have led the film into this more serious minded stuff that would have justified some of mangold's more uh uh darker uh grittier kind of treatments of violence maybe but i think that is also working at cross purposes with the rapport that indiana develops with helena Mm -hmm. phoebe waller bridges character where that's much more it's almost like a kind of last crusade-esque kind of buddy dynamic Mm -hmm. um which is much more the like the fizzy indiana jones adventure we're used to and either one of those could could have resulted in an interesting movie i think mangold needed to give one priority over the other and it feels it feels to me like it kind of falls between two stools with those and maybe that's why it feels internally conflicted Mm, yeah that's a possibility i you mentioned um Voller and, and Indy being kind of diametrically opposed. And I wonder, and I think this is better as subtext, which I think is where it stays in this movie. But I wonder if the thing linking them is the desire for control and the inability to control. So Voller obviously is a Nazi. He's a fascist. He's interested in that power and that complete control. Indy is never in control of any situation that he's in at any given time. And... Maybe it's something that the movie doesn't really draw too, too much attention to, and I'm okay with that, is the two of them are, are interested in the same artifact. Their approaches towards getting to it are kind of the cat and mouse game that you get in most Indiana Jones adventures. And I think Indy is more than ever aware of the fact that he isn't in any control at any one given moment. And maybe it's the fact that he's a little bit less central in some of these action set pieces, that that kind of makes that subtext slide a little bit to the side. So there are a couple of moments here that feel of a kind with other Indiana Jones moments. There's, you know, your prerequisite bug gross out scene in the middle of a maze. And I'm really glad that they didn't spend too much time on that because (laughs) I I am a hard pass when it comes to centipedes. Um, There's also a moment where we kind of get a nod to Indy's fear of snakes, but it's in kind of a surprising way. Yes. I really appreciated that set piece because it's not, I mean, it's obviously a nod to the fear of snakes, but it's also just, I don't know, it's, it's interestingly set where we get that contrast between 
Indy's ability to get to what he needs to get and his need to get through something that he deeply fears. And he's not screaming about how much he hates snakes the entire time because he doesn't need to do that. We can tell that that's what's going on within his head. And that sequence, I think, is genuinely frightening because I truly did not know who was going to come out on top of what was going on. There's an added dimension of it being underwater at the same time too so I, I was genuinely afraid for the safety of all of these characters and I'm kind of glad that it goes by so swiftly that it takes a minute to register what actually happens in that action set piece kind of feels of a kind with some of the other action sequences that we get with Indy where you get the chance to take stock of the danger that he's in and then you get to watch him slip out of it and you almost wonder how he managed to do it. And usually it's just dumb luck because that's how Indy operates. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I will say for for all that, I don't think the film is fully successful in its kind of the way it explores its themes. I do think it's a passable kind of adventure blockbuster. Mm-hmm. Um, Spielberg is, is great. And I don't know that uh, the way that... There's something about some of these action sequences that don't feel like they maybe have the same panache in their staging and editing as uh, something like the uh, that you know big car chase uh, in Raiders of the Lost Ark Mm -hmm. or the tank sequence from from Last Crusade. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do think like it's fun and Mangold does successfully find new ways to give us some of the same old indie tropes, you know, the fear of snakes and the way that's recontextualized, I thought was a really fun scene. And, you know, in the tradition of the best Indiana Jones ones, it's funny, but it's also, it's also very tense. And I think it threads that needle quite nicely. I think Waller Bridge is a fun addition. I like her, her screen presence in this film a lot. I think it's interesting to see her as sort of like profit motive, Indiana Jones. That's kind of a, a fun little dynamic to explore and kind of sets it apart from the the buddy movie dynamic that we saw in last crusade Mm -hmm. so i think a lot of the the more like surface pleasures here i think are like they're they're fine um so i'm hesitant to just write off completely because in some ways it does deliver the summer popcorn movie goods Mm -hmm. so it's got that going for it (laughs) indiana jones passable which (laughs) is nice you know it could have been a lot worse i'll i'll say that much it could have been another crystal skull i think yeah it's not that yeah uh maybe a little a little bit of a backhanded compliment to end the review on but uh we'll just leave it there listeners we do uh have mixed feelings about this movie but we're interested in your feelings about it as well uh it is currently in theaters and we're sure that some of you have seen it uh and are probably excited to talk about it given the uh, response to the Twitter poll that we're going to talk about here in a few minutes. If you want to let us know your thoughts on Dial of Destiny, our inbox slash Twitter feed is always open to you. You can tweet us at Pod on Twitter, hit us up on Letterboxd at that same username, or email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to The Conversation. This is the part of the show where we share what we've been hearing from all you listeners out there, keeping the conversation about movies going. I did mention earlier that we asked a, we we set up a poll, I guess, on Twitter about Mm -hmm. the Indiana Jones franchise up to this point. Uh, Like I said, we got a fair few responses on that. So safe to say that there's some indie fans in our our listener base. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you bring together a group of cinephiles, I'm sure at least... Most of them are probably into Indiana Jones on some level. So I simply wanted to know what's your favorite Indiana Jones, sort of taking the temperature of our listeners out there. And of course, we have four possible answers, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Temple of Doom, Last Crusade, and Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Not surprisingly, nobody came out for Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. But if you are that listener, I would love to hear from you. Um, We did have one vote for Temple of Doom, which I find quite interesting. I would also like 
to hear from that listener as well. I, I have my suspicions about the identity of, of this person, <laughs> but I will not say on the air who I think it is. <laughs> Just put them on blast. Uh, one third of our voters voted Last Crusade, which I think is a pretty respectable outing, but not surprisingly, the vast majority of our listeners love Raiders of the Lost Ark, which I'm there with them. I think it's the best Indiana Jones movie. Yeah, I mean, Last Crusade is a lot of fun, and I do feel like... Maybe maybe it's just me, but recently it does feel like there's kind of been a, a big swell of appreciation for that movie. And it's a lot of fun, but it can't hold a candle to the first one. That being said, Last Crusade is the only Indiana Jones movie, I, I suppose, pre-Kingdom of the Crystal Skull that I have seen on the big screen. So I've seen Crystal Skull on the big screen. Of course, I've seen Dial of Destiny on the big screen now. I've also seen Last Crusade on the big screen. And when you're with a group of rowdy people at the Music Box Theater here in Chicago, um, Last Crusade is a lot of fun to watch. I mean, it's a fun movie. I think maybe the more interesting question is, you know, I think it's my opinion would be that Raiders is obvious obviously the best movie but the more interesting question might be was is is last crusade or temple of doom better like which one of them belongs at the number two spot because you know how i feel about ranking things but it's definitely last crusade (laughs) yeah i mean i you know i think it's last crusade as well Mm -hmm. i will say that uh for all the flack that temple of doom gets i also feel like i've been seeing a little bit of reappraisal and maybe more appreciation coming that way that movie's way as well so yeah part of me wonders how much of that is extra textual or metatextual because people are a little bit more aware of the very dark places that spielberg and lucas were in when they made temple of doom maybe it could also be that just they've everyone has seen kingdom the crystal skull and they know how how bad things really could get. So they were like, you appreciate what you got in Temple of Doom. But I suppose, yeah. yeah. Part of me wants to rewatch Temple of Doom. Part of me is content to leave that one in the past. So maybe that one can just stay the relic and I will let it lie covered in dust. Yeah, we we were talking about this in in our Seeing and Believing Slack channel with uh, with our producer, Jonathan. And uh, I think the thing about Temple of Doom is it just... I remember seeing it when I was a little kid, mm-hmm. um, not on the big screen. I'm, you know, I'm not that old, but like I, I remember, you know, watching it on video, and it's so dark. At, you know, at at Indy's lowest point, it's not just oh, I wonder how Indy's going to get out of the scrape, but I think Indy is literally going to die in this mm-hmm. in the, this cult's clutches. And as a kid, I, I was it it just felt very grim. Yeah, and that's maybe why like Last Crusade edges above it just because you got sean connery you got indiana jones bickering like that's that's just more fun indy doesn't turn evil in last crusade yeah that movie also scarred me when i was a kid as well which is part of the reason why i have never gotten back to it it's just deeply upsetting to see indy do despicable deeds and seeming like he's choosing to do them yeah i don't like that don't like it do not want uh (laughs) listeners uh the poll unfortunately on twitter is is closed you can't you know click the little voting button but as always our replies are open to you no matter what time you want to reply back to us so let us know your thoughts and maybe you know throw in a little bit of a plug for what you think is the best number two indiana jones movie that might be an interesting data point to have as well we would love to hear that And now it's time for the watch list. This is the part of the show where one host picks a film that the other host hasn't seen. We both watch it and then talk about it. Usually there's, uh, you know, some sort of thematic connection between the watch list pick and the the new release that we review on that episode. Sarah, for your pairing, you picked Peter Bogdanovich's 1971 film the last picture show and i am super interested to hear what the thematic connection is with indiana jones and the dial of destiny (laughs) yeah tonally they're very very different this is this is not a serial that is based on you know film serials from the 1930s that's for sure yeah not not a lot of daring do not a lot of swashbuckling here uh this is a film that's actually based on a larry mcmurtry novel of the same name it takes place in the gradually fading texas town of Annerine. And I don't know, I would say it's kind of a small town study in the same way that another film might be a character study. Mm. The Last Picture Show does focus on two central characters, uh, Jeff Bridges, Dwayne, and Timothy Bottoms, Sonny, and the various uh, heartbreaks and misadventures they experience as they 
uh, graduate from high school and face the the future in front of them. But Bogdanovich isn't just interested in those two characters. He's kind of interested in the way their lives map onto the life of the town in which they live and the ways that they form connections and break connections with the other people in this small town. Uh, I did say that I'm super interested in the connections here because this is a pretty bleak film. Mm -hmm. If if I were feeling uh, uncharitable, I would say this is a town where optimism goes to die. Mm-hmm. Um, I am not feeling uncharitable. I, you know, spoiler alert. I do. I liked this film quite a bit, oh, good. but I have no idea <laughs> what you're going to say is the, the strong thematic link between this and dial of destiny. So let's hear it, Sarah. We'll see if I can make uh, a convincing argument in its favor. So um, when I was thinking of movies to pair with Indiana Jones, I was thinking partly of the, in the text connection of searching for artifacts, searching for memory, looking to preserve the past. I was also kind of thinking of the metatextual, people feel a lot of nostalgia towards the Indiana Jones series. And so what better movie to puncture some of those myths than a movie that deliberately sets out to demonstrate what the act of indulging in nostalgia and the act of, of wallowing in the past actually does to a person and to a town. This is not a remotely sentimental movie at all. And it's kind of interested in the inner lives of its characters, especially as they're kind of stuck in the same place and they're starting to unearth a lot of the same memories and the same feelings that they had when they were kids and then passing along that same sense of boredom and ennui and longing for the past to their own children. And it's something that's very cyclical. Indiana Jones movies are also incredibly cyclical. You could say that they follow a formula and this movie takes a formula and applies it not to a series of movies, but to the lives of the characters Hmm. who are stuck in this small town in Texas. And it just kind of lets that play out. There's a bit of a thread about, you know, the role of movies in this dying town as well. And I think a lot of characters in that town treat the movies as though they're also an artifact of the past. At one point, one character says nobody's interested in going to the movie, moving pictures anymore because TV and sports have taken over that place. And I think for this character, the movies are that relic of the past that is shiny and new and could probably change the world if everybody else treated them with the same reverence and respect that she does. But nobody else does that. And that's kind of the case with Indiana Jones and the relics that he's chasing too. For him, they belong in a museum. They should be appreciated by everybody. But everybody else who's chasing the relics that Indiana Jones is chasing isn't doing it for the good of mankind. They're doing it for their own power and gain. So... That's my galaxy-brained connection between those two movies. Was I convincing I, enough? I, I mean, uh, I like those connections a lot. Am I fully convinced by them? Maybe not, <laughs> but I don't think that's the point. Mm-hmm. The point isn't to convince me. The point is just to know that those were there uh, when you made the pick. And that I think that's really interesting. And I'm glad you brought up the um, the the few times that the old movie house in Anarine does come up because I think that kind of hints at the the guiding force behind this movie, which is it seems to be kind of a movie about disillusionment. Mm-hmm. How these these young people sort of start off and they think, you know, they're going to be the ones they're going to to find the the cheat code that will allow them to you know, avoid making their parents' mistakes or to get out of their small town or to achieve some sort of some sort of uh, dream or uh, success that has eluded the, the people around them. And uh, as the film goes on, you know, those, those dreams uh, are either revealed to be just fictions or the, the reality undergirding what, what it's going to, t- to take to kind of reach those dreams is is revealed and there's an there's a linchpin scene towards the end where um Dwayne and Sonny go to the movies one last time it's the it's the last picture show mm-hmm. in Anarine and uh you know this is after they've they've had a, a 
horrible fight where you know one of them almost gets blinded in one eye because they're they're fighting over uh the same girl jc played by sybil shepherd mm-hmm. um they've you know that's that's water under the bridge now and they're watching a movie together and uh the movie they're watching is a western a john wayne western and uh although i'm not sh- i haven't seen the film that they're wa- they're watching in this scene it's a film that sort of is like many john wayne westerns um, holding up sort of this this very idyllic uh, vision of the American West. In this case, a bunch of cowboys. They're they're on a cattle drive. They're going to take those cows to Missouri, and they're all joyously whooping and driving the cows. And they're shot in the film, uh, you know, kind of in in, the, in these heroic close ups where they're they're joyful, they're masculine, they're manly. They're they're getting the job done, um, and it's a good job for them. Uh, then very, not too much later, we get a scene where a young man who helps out in Sonny's pool hall gets hit by a truck mm-hmm. and Sonny, you know, walks up to the crowd of cowboys standing around him who are responsible for his death. And they're taking the cows, not on a cow drive, but just in the back of a, of a flatbed truck. They're all standing around They're They're essentially saying this boy was worthless you know, he, he was no good. I don't even know what he was doing out here. They're basically the polar opposites of those idealized cowboys in that Western that Sonny just watched. And I think that's sort of the nail in the coffin for him in sort of realizing that the real world isn't the picture show. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's something that's a lot harder and bleaker and... Um, the the heroes that you idolize on screen are are fictions and it's a very sad realization for something you have it also feels very very truthful and very moving in in that moment Mm -hmm. and i don't know i just i like that a lot yeah it's a it's a crucial juxtaposition and i think it really i don't know i i love that this movie was based on a novel by larry mcmurtry and larry mcmurtry actually helped co-write the script for this movie as well and I, i think he's good at both writing about the myths of the American West and then also puncturing a lot of those myths. And I think that scene of them closing out the last picture show by watching a Western is precisely crucial because those Westerns are, I think, what everybody thinks of when they're thinking about the Old West. But that's also, that was never really a true picture of the Old West to begin with. It was always idealized. And every time a character in this town talks about the past. They're talking about an idealized version of the past that has taken out all of the hard details of their lives up until that point. And they're only thinking about the good things. They're not thinking about everything else that led them up to this moment. And that's the case for every character in this town. But it's especially true for this character of Sam the Lion, who's played by Ben Johnson, um, who I believe won an Oscar for his supporting role in this movie. Um, beautifully played role. He delivers a few uh, monologues gorgeously and then basically gets out of the way of everybody else. But the way that he does it, um, he's kind of the most idealistic character within this entire town. And he also seems to be the moral compass for the town. So when he dies unexpectedly right around the midpoint, it's a shock to everybody. But the same things that he had been idealizing in his own past are also the same things that kind of lead to the disillusionment and the deaths of a lot of relationships of the characters within the town as well. Like He's just as susceptible to nostalgia glasses, I think, as everybody else is who are around him. He just happens to have a better view of the present, I think, than everybody else. Yeah, there's a, a line uh, just following the revelation that, that he dies. So Dwayne and Sonny, they they decide they're going to get out of town. They're they're going to go to Mexico and just have a wild weekend. Mm-hmm. And uh, they get back and they're all hungover, and they just encounter, uh, you know, another townsperson, and they're wondering, you know, why why is the pool hall closed up? And he says, well, you know, Sam the lion died, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it's it's a crushing moment for them. Later on, uh, Sonny. Uh, tells another character, you know, nothing seems to to have gone right after Sam died. Mm-hmm. And it's a touching line because, number one, it, it shows just how much 
Sam meant to Sonny and to the town. It's also touching because you kind of have to wonder, is that true? Mm-hmm. Like, did everything go wrong or did, was Sam sort of the the person that you kind of held up as the cowboy who you could sort of hope and believe in and that kind of maybe helped you view your own the the town's whole existence kind of through rose tinted glass glasses and i think that that's very perceptive it's not a moment that bogdanovich really highlights in any way or like he doesn't direct the actor to sort of you know deliver that with a particular tone that suggests that we shouldn't take it at face value the editing doesn't emphasize it at all but uh Everything we've seen up to that point and everything we'll see after that kind of makes us, it gives the audience a reason to sort of evaluate that, not just as a statement of emotional uh, intent, which is, you know, very true, but also to evaluate on, well, is it actually, is, is it actually true? Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of multivalent way to read that moment, I think is maybe a, a strength of the picture as a whole. It's like there, there's lots of moments like that where you can read them multiple ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Bogdanovich is really doing incredible work in this movie, I think. Um, I think he trusts his actors to be able to deliver the lines that they need to do without having to tell them to overact it. You know, nothing went right since Sam the Lion died. And maybe that's true and maybe that's not, but it's true for that character in that moment. And I think also... Bogdanovich is keenly aware of the different ways that his characters all view the world and how they all view each other as well. And one of the greatest strengths of this movie, I think, is that no one character in this movie is ever an object within the audience's eyes. They're certainly objectified by the other characters within the movie. So I'm thinking about a moment fairly early on when Sonny has just broken up with his high school girlfriend and he goes to the diner to, you know, have a drink and and be consoled. And he's looking the waitress Genevieve up and down and the camera follows his gaze up and down. It's very male gazy shot. And Genevieve turns and she looks directly at the camera. And in that moment, we know that Sonny knows that he's been caught. And we also know that Genevieve is not just an object for the camera, and she's also not just an object for Sunny either. She is her own person, and she's also very aware of where she stands in this person's eyes. And yet she also is able to treat him with compassion. Not to say that Sunny is doing anything right necessarily, but Genevieve is aware, probably partly because she's older and she's been in this world for much longer than Sunny has. Genevieve is aware of how this world works, and she is aware that this is a character who's dealing with heartbreak, and she also is aware that she needs to be able to set those boundaries with him, and she does it with just a look. And I think a lesser movie would have just been content to objectify to objectify the character of Genevieve and then just move on and use that as a way to establish the fact that Sonny's feeling lonely after he's broken up. And... The movie never does that. And I don't think it ever backs down in any of those deeply uncomfortable moments when different characters are objectifying each other in different ways. You know, I think that The Last Picture Show is actually an interesting case study in how a film can have a real moral vision without necessarily having to have characters say moral things or act morally. Yes. Um you you mentioned the you know the scene with with Sunny you know eyeing up the the waitress. There's uh, also multiple scenes where he or another character engage in uh, in intimate relations with with you know a girlfriend or a par- paramour, and you know obviously they're they're kids they're they're not married you know it's 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 not a moral thing for them to be doing, but the way that it's shot. Um, Bogdanovich is emphasizing that there these late night rendezvous, you know, in in the makeout spots, they're not being done necessarily because they feel any great attachment to each other, commitment to each other, or or even love. Strictly speaking, it's more like they're trying to get something out of the encounter. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's bragging rights or whether it's just sort of they think it's expected of them to feel up their girlfriend at a makeout spot 
And that's really the reason they're doing it. And that also is like, that's a very mature perspective that the film communicates. And Bogdanovich does it simply by the, the angles that he chooses and the way that he directs his actors to go through the motions of these encounters. You know, it is, um, it earns its R rating, but it's not prurient and it definitely doesn't invite the audience to view these encounters through the same perspective that the characters are as they engage in them. And I, I really appreciate that. And, and that's at, at hard the, to do. Yeah, it is. And and at the same time, I think we also feel the tension that these characters are feeling and the fear that these characters are feeling in some of those moments. And I think every single moment where one character is um, vulnerable or is in a compromising position with another character or is simply intimate with another character, I'm pretty sure every single time this happens, the score cuts out completely and we're left with just the crushing silence and the intense focus of the camera on these characters and then the intense focus of everybody else on them as well. And I think some of that attention is simply just ratcheting up the tension. And some of that is warranted because it's a small town and everybody's aware of what everybody else is doing, whether or not they're actually physically present in those moments. And I think also that idea of having to go through the motions without ever fully being willing to commit or understand why these characters are doing this, I think stems from a lot of the boredom and ennui that these characters are undergoing because they don't have anything else for them to do, or at least they haven't been able to come up with anything better for them to do. Um, I think it's really easy to romanticize small town life, and Bogdanovich isn't interested in doing that at all. He's only interested in the loneliness and in the boredom and in what those things do to the characters who are stuck in that situation and who don't feel like they have any way to get out of it. I really like how Bogdanovich uses dissolve edits uh, to communicate that loneliness. So there are multiple times where uh, he and uh, he he acted uh, as a as an uncredited co-editor on this film, uh, but his co-editor was Don Camburn, and he and Camburn multiple times will dissolve uh, from a shot of two characters or a character's face um, and dissolve into just an empty street or a deserted storefront, um, and you know the the function of the the storefront or the street is as, as an establishing shot like that, that's lead us into the next scene. But because, because they're using this dissolve rather than just a hard cut, they're really suggesting a link or melding between the inner lives of the characters we're seeing dissolve away and these barren streets of this small town that is either dying or is simply kind of plodding along knowing that its best days are behind it. And I think that, those edits are, are kind of spiritually crushing. They're yeah. they're very sad edits. But again, it's not something that he. It's something that's done entirely through cinematic craft. It's not uh, something where uh, he's using a lot of um, uh, drama in the writing or in the soundtrack to really uh, force an emotional reaction out of the audience. It's just if you're being attentive to the film's rhythms and the way that it's constructed that sadness just leaps out at you. Yeah. It's about as straightforward, I think, as a Larry McMurtry sentence, probably. It's also, th those dissolves also serve an additional function of allowing time to bleed into and across itself, too. So we get the sense that all of this is happening over a series of episodes, and it's not really happening all at once, necessarily. But you don't really need to know precisely how much time is happening between any one incident, because... It all sort of bleeds together after a moment. Everybody's talking about the same things at the same time. Everybody is concerned with the same issues all at the same time. Because, again, there's nothing else for them to do. But you get that sense of loneliness and you get that sense of time is passing, but we're still stuck here. Um, and he also does that with the framing as well. There's, there's some good shots of just desolate sky and not much else. Um, I think an establishing shot that shows us what Sonny does for a job when he's not in high school is just delivering propane to different houses. 
And the shot that I'm thinking of, I think the top half of the frame is nothing but sky and everything below it is scrub brush and then a propane truck filling up a propane tank in a very, very small shack shot in just this gorgeous clear gray. And it would look really beautiful. I guess it does look really beautiful, but it also looks desperately lonely. And it looks like Sonny wants to get out of there just as badly as I think I do when I'm looking at that image too. Yeah, that that cinematography and those shot choices really do capture Texas very well. And, you know, I haven't, I, I don't, I've not lived in Texas, but I've lived, you know, next door in New Mexico. And I think it's it's right to say that the very spare landscapes can be quite beautiful and can also be just utterly barren, mm-hmm. you know, almost in, at the same time. And I think Bogdanovich is able to capture that quality in some of these shots. Um, he's just very good at capturing kind of that sense of... Uh, again, I guess coming back to that editing, the way he can sort of collapse time with those edits where there will be a cut to a scene and everyone will be talking and it's not until halfway through the conversation where one of them says something you realize oh this is weeks after the previous scene that we're in the the previous shot that we're in and yet they're they're kind of just they're it's almost like they're wearing the same clothes they're talking about what happened three weeks ago almost as if it were yesterday and that kind of quality really is so evocative of a town where not much happens and the the days can drag on until you know seemingly in the moment and then so you suddenly you turn around and you realize you know weeks have passed or in the case of ellen burston's character you know you can turn around and realize that your youth is gone Mm -hmm. and you can't get it back Mm -hmm. um i really loved burston uh here uh she's she might be my favorite in the you know, favorite performance in the entire film, but it's a really incredible cast. And I'm curious to know if you have a personal favorite here. I love Cloris Leachman in this movie. I love oh, yeah. the, the sense of loneliness that she brings and the sense of, of frustrated dignity, I think. And the fact that she's trying desperately to hold on to something that nobody else is willing to fully give to her. And I think it would be easy to just let her slide over to the side because she's such an unassuming character who's grateful for the attention that she's getting from Sonny. So she plays the high school football and basketball coach's wife. And Sonny picks up an affair with her throughout the course of the movie. And then just as casually just tosses her aside as soon as he gets the chance to go out with the girl that he's really truly been interested in. And Bogdanovich spends a little bit of additional time with her throughout the movie after that abandonment where she's just sitting on the bed and she's waiting for someone to come home to her and nobody is coming and there's no dialogue in these sequences. It's literally just all on Cloris Leachman's face and she does get to have a big grand monologue about how she feels at the moment and some of that, I think all of it is warranted. It's a good monologue and it's it's well-written as well. But I think the way that Bogdanovich is able to set that within the middle of a scene where she's almost like the, the, the major stone within a setting and everything else is serving that monologue and serving that performance. And all of those things are underlining what she feels Um in a way that I think manages to enhance it and give additional meaning to it. Um, one of the other things that I love about this movie is that it was also set designed by Polly Platt, um, who at the time I believe was in a relationship with Bogdanovich as well. Polly Platt decorates the scene where Cloris Leachman is delivering this speech to Sonny um, with a, what looks like a porcelain revolver on <laughs> the wall above Sonny's head and it's pointed at him it's pointed it's pointed at him and it's something that makes perfect sense for the house that this woman lives in like it's Texas there's going to be guns on the wall and it's also just deeply rich with that symbolism and it's also completely useless because I'm pretty sure it's made out of porcelain and it's decorative and it's symbolic and it's also just a natural thing that someone would probably have in their house in their kitchen over their table And I think it also gets at the sense of impotent despair that her character feels, too. All of those things are working together so beautifully well. And 
they are all brought together to a point by that one scene and by that one monologue. And to your earlier point also, again, she's not she's not just sort of a supporting character in Sunny's story. She is she is give she is her own person. She's given full personhood uh by the the way that you know again that she's framed the way that leachman plays her and the way that bogdanovich uh does cut away from sunny striking up a relationship with his dream girl jc mm-hmm. um and cuts away from her to that sh- that deeply sad shot of uh leachman's character you know sitting alone on a bed she's you know she's dolled up and again, nobody's coming home to her, mm-hmm. and that I, I I think again, like she, it would be easy for a film to sort of just make her kind of a subplot, and strictly speak, structurally speaking, she is. Mm-hmm. But the way that Bogdanovich's camera films her, she doesn't feel that way to the audience, and I, I really appreciate that about her. Yeah. The movie respects, I think, every single character who walks through its frames, whether they respect themselves or anybody else or not. Yeah, that's that's a good note to to end things on. I, you know, I'm really interested if any of our listeners uh, watched along with us for this watch list pick, because I number one, I'm curious to know if they had my experience where I was like, (laughs) oh, Bogdanovich, we we did a previous watch list segment also recommended by you, Sarah, where we did What's Up, Doc, which served like this screwball caper. Mm hmm. And so I'm very curious to know if any listeners out there kind of had the the same whiplash that I did. Also curious to know if any listeners out there liked it as much as I did. So Mm, listeners, you can uh, write in on Twitter, Letterboxd, or email to let us know the mysteries behind that question. Next week, Sarah, we are going to be talking about another little you know, little movie. A serialized movie, I think. Yeah. That is a throwback to a couple decades ago, potentially. Oh, okay. So so we're already forming the, the connections there, listeners. We are going to be talking about the new Mission Impossible. Full title, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. Mm-hmm. Uh, so look for that next week. I'm going to be pairing that with Satoshi Kon's 2006 film, Paprika. I'm really excited to talk about this this movie. Um, I think you'll really dig it, Sarah. I'm really looking forward to watching this. It's been on my radar. I have not seen it, of course, which is why we're talking about it for the watch list. I'm kind of in the middle of an anime phase this summer as mm-hmm. well, so I'm really glad of the excuse to watch this movie. I also have no idea what the connective tissue is going to be between Mission Impossible and Paprika, so I'm looking forward to hearing your galaxy brain take about it. I mean, I'll probably have more when I actually see the new Mission Impossible, but... <laughs> Those will be upcoming for sure. I'll I'll be sure to serve those up. Excellent. So uh, that'll be coming up next week. If you do want to watch along with us, listeners, Paprika is available to stream on demand on Amazon and other platforms as well. But for now, that'll do it for this week. Thanks for joining us, listeners. Seeing and Believing is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. I'm your co-host, Sarah Welch-Larson. And we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing. This episode was brought to you in part by Just These Guys. You know, a pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology, empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just These Guys. You know?